Well, about six months ago, I got an email from Knox Theological Seminary that I graduated from uh, years ago. I'm enrolled in a Doctor of Ministry class there, or program there, and I got an email about one of the classes that they were offering called the Art of Expository Preaching. And what caught my eye about the email was not so much uh, the topic, although that's clearly a relevant topic for me, um, but it was the professor. Uh, It was a class that it's going to be taught and was taught this whole week by Dr. Haddon Robinson. And so as soon as I saw the email, I signed up for the class, and Matt signed up for the class, and Carter Brown, our director of student ministry, signed up for the class, and Scott Carson, who works also with our students, signed up for the class. So we all sort of flocked into the class, and we've had the privilege, really, of being in this class Monday through Friday of this week. And if you follow me on Twitter, you know that I've been tweeting out all these little brilliant statements, none of which came from me, so, um, but came from Dr. Robinson. Uh, it's been a pleasure to sit under his teaching. He is, uh, you know, we talk about people, they've wrote the book, you know, somebody who's an expert in their field. Oh, we say, hey, they wrote the book. Well, he actually did uh, write the book. Um, that is almost mandatory reading probably in most of the seminaries around the country. Uh, he's a pastor. He's a professor. He has served as president of uh, Dem- Denver Seminary and uh, of Gordon-Conwell. Um, and aside from all of those things, we've had the privilege of getting to know him at least a little bit this week. And he's a really wonderful man. And he and his wife, Bonnie, are here with us this morning. And and so it's my privilege today to uh, have you sit under his teaching for a little while. And I know that you'll be blessed, even as I have been. So if you'll help me welcome Dr. Haddon Robinson. Well, you're all here. We've enjoyed our time down here. <laughs> we come from up north with icicles are thick, cold winds, snow. You don't know anything about that, do you? Well, I'll be glad to explain how bad it is up there and how nice it is down here. There's a cliche that goes around that says that uh, all the world loves a lover. Exaggeration, some cranks that don't love lovers. But for the most part, that's probably true. And uh, that explains what happened last Tuesday and Valentine's Day. Uh, I mean, think about it. Valentine's is a kind of a nothing day. What are we celebrating? You know, the birth of Valentine or the death of Mr. Valentine? Who's Valentine? We don't know. But what happened was they had a big time at Christmas and New Year's, and they're anticipating a bigger time at Easter. But in January and February and March, most parts of the country, no holiday. It's grim, difficult. So somebody must have said, hey, look, all the world loves a lover. Let's celebrate a day in February. And so they did. I, I don't know who they were, probably florists and probably candy makers and people who sell wine and restaurateurs. But according to USA Today, the average adult spends $28 to celebrate Valentine's Day. So it's not a lot, but it's more than they would have gotten anyhow, because all the world loves a lover. If there's any truth in that, 
then I think the best love story in the entire Bible would be the story of the prophet Hosea. In some ways, it's just an ordinary story, like a million other stories take place every year in Miami or Fort Lauderdale or New York or Boston or Chicago. It's the story of a broken vow, broken home, broken heart, broken life. But in other ways, this story is so utterly unique it ranks as one of the most amazing in all of literature. Now, we have ignored it in our Sunday school lessons, shunned it in our pulpits, but God has chosen the sad, sordid story of this broken-hearted prophet to reveal his heart, to manifest his love. The setting for the story of Hosea it takes place in the city of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. And Hosea, a young prophet, is called by God to meet and to love and eventually marry a young woman by the name of Gomer. Gomer is part of the wild, easygoing life of her time. But Hosea brings much to this marriage. He brings the unsquandered treasure of a young man's purity. For Hosea has never sacrificed upon some wayside altar, and as a result, he comes to this supreme moment of his life with much to give. <laughs> and I imagine that Gomer must have been swept off the feet by this young man of a genius, the passion of a poet, zeal of a saint. Now, Preacher's life, like any man's, I guess, is blessed or ruined by the woman that he marries. So I imagine that uh, when Gomer first met, uh, or when Hosea first met Gomer, he must have thought that uh, she was as pure as the lily of the valley, <clears throat> his favorite love poem, the Song of Solomon. But as the days passed, he grew to know her better. He realized that uh, her purity had already been taken and trampled under the passions of vile, impure men. Yet, it was in accord with the command from God in chapter 1, verse 2, that Hosea and Gomer were married. And I imagine the prophet must have thought, all right, uh, Gomer's past wasn't very good, but since God has brought us together, our future will be filled with happiness and delight. But he's wrong. Hosea may not have had the time for his uh, pretty young wife. Hosea was determined to try to save a nation. And he knew that the prosperous nation of Israel would fall victim to the war machine of Assyria unless it repented of its sin. And so Hosea gave his days and nights, calling the people back to God in an all-out effort to avert disaster. But Gomer did not share the heart of a more righteous, religious husband. She thought things stupid. He thought uh, serious. 
Then she must have pouted and told uh, Jose he cared much more for his preaching than he did for her. And he bit by bit. Gomer went back to the old wildlife from which she had come. And day after day, Hosea returned home with the heavier burden than that of a decaying nation written inside. Night after night, he lay awake long after it was good for him, waiting for his wayward wife to return. Now, I'm sure that Hosea must have prayed. He was a godly man, and I'm sure he carried his domestic burden to the Lord. And one day it seemed God answered his prayer. Gomer became pregnant, gave birth to a baby. And as Hosea held that infant in his arms, he must have reasoned, this is God's doing. I mean, this little baby will take one chubby hand, put it around my heart, another chubby hand, put it around Gomer's heart, and he'll draw our lives together. And he called the name of the child, according to verse 4 of chapter 1, Jezreel. Now, Jezreel was a city that had played a terrible part in Israel's history. Tragic apostasy under a wicked, weak king by the name of Ahad and his wife Jezebel had come to its frightening conclusion when the queen Jezebel was thrown from the window of her palace and dogs devoured her body on the streets of Jezreel. So when Hosea called his son Jezreel, he was making the boy and his marriage a kind of object lesson in God's relationship to his people. Every time he called Jezreel in the uh, playground, every time he called Jezreel in the marketplace, that name sounding in the ear of a thoughtful Jew would have brought back memories of the fact that when the nation continued to sin, God acted against it in judgment. But even though little Jezreel <clears throat> was born, COVID did not change. Oh, I imagine that there were times when she shed hot tears and promised to do better. But I guess her promises were never strong enough or her tears hot enough to make her turn. But then they had a, a second child, a little girl. They called her, and according to verse uh, 4, or according to verse 6, uh, Lorama, which means not pity. And then after Lorama, that pity was weaned, they had a second boy, a third child. And they called his name according to verse 9, uh, Hebrew is Loami, which means not my people. So these three names of Hosea's children, Jezreel, unpitied, not my people, do two things. They give us a brief sketch of the nation Israel, even to the current hour. But for our purposes, <laughs> they give us an insight as to what was going on in the prophet's family. 
For the name of this third child, Loami, which means no kin of mine, indicates that in brokenheartedness, Hosea became possessed with the suspicion that became a damning certainty that these children born into his home were really not his children at all. And yet, even though Gomer was living in adultery, Hosea refused to divorce her. And then when the second blow fell, Hosea returned home and discovered that Gomer had left him. Perhaps there was a note pinned to the nursery door. She told him she was leaving. She was tired of being tied down. She wanted to have her freedom, and she was leaving. And uh, Hosea was not to follow. So you can imagine what happened that night. Hosea has to be both a father and a mother to these children. He listens to their childish prayers and then watches as they drift off to sleep. But there's no sleep for Hosea. Even though Gomer has left his home, she hasn't left his heart. <laughs> you can't imagine how the people in Samaria must have laughed. You can hear the gossip as it went over the back fences of the city. The prophet's life has left him. <laughs> yeah, he's so been telling everybody else how to live. He couldn't hold his own home together. But there were those who knew Hosea, knew Gomer, knew how she had betrayed him, who simply shrugged their shoulders and said, well, now that she's gone, she's better off forgotten. But Hosea loved Gomer. Hosea could not forget. Now, I imagine that when, uh, when Gomer left Hosea, she must have thought she was bettering herself. I mean, she must have been lured from his, his side by the promise of an exciting life and exotic foods and fashionable clothes. But as often happens with folks who take that trek in life, it starts to lead up to the, high, to the heights, but it has a way of turning and going down into the depths. And that's what happened to Gomer. After she left Hosea, she began to pass from man to man until finally she fell into the hands of a man who could not care for her at all, could not uh, provide the basic necessities of food and clothes. And all that time, Hosea watched as uh, Gomer took that path. When he realized that she was living with a man who could not provide the basic necessities of life, evidently he went to the man and he introduced himself. Are you the man that's living with Gomer, the daughter of Tobiah? Well, what do I am? <laughs> I'm I'm her husband. Man clenches his fists. He's ready for a fight. Hosea says, no, you, 
You don't understand. I love my wife. And I just wondered if you would take some of my silver, some of my gold, buy for her the things that she needs. A man stares at the prophet's outstretched hand, sees the money and thinks, there's no fool like this fool. He agrees to the preacher's plan. You say, it's all a big story, isn't it? I mean, does God love us that way? The answer is yes. God loves us the same way. First look at it in the text. He says this in chapter 2, verse uh, Their mother has played the prostitute. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I'll go after my lovers, my lovers who gave me my bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, my drink. But in uh, verse 8, Hosea laments, that she didn't know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil. I was the one who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Someplace in the shadows we see Hosea. He stands and watches as Gomer races from the hut throws her arms around this lover and thanks him for the things that love has provided. Love offers, folly accepts. <laughs> if you're tempted to sit in judgment, that going. I'd remind you that's the kind of thing that you and I have done with God and that God does with us. I, I, you have to ask, what, does God love us like that? And the answer is yes, he does. Uh, God gives to uh, men and women uh, metal in the mine. God gives to the miners skill to go into the earth to dig the metal. And when the metal is mined, the smith takes it and forms it into a spike. God gives to the uh, woodsman skill to chop down the tree. And when the tree is cut, the carpenter forms it into a cross. And then God comes stretches his arms along the beams of that cross and allows men to pound with cruel violence the nails into his hands. And he dies there for the very people who put him there. For the soldiers that drove the spikes through his hand, to the, for, the, for the crowd standing, jeering, mocking beneath the tree. He died there for them, he died there for you.
that we might have forgiveness of sins, eternal life, heaven forevermore. And yet, even though Gomer was, uh, Hosea was paying the, 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 part, the, the, the price for Gomer, she didn't change. And so at the end of chapter 2, Hosea does with Gomer what uh, God did with the nation Israel, what God sometimes does with us. Being unable to draw her to him with the cords of love, he decided to cut the cords. She had planted the wind, she could reap the whirlwind. And so in the uh, end of chapter 2, verse 14, God does, or Hosea does with Gomer, what God does with us sometimes. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there, in that wilderness, she shall answer as in the days of her youth. That phrase in verse 15, the valley of Achor, you'll note in the notes of your Bible, <laughs> It means the valley of trouble. And Hosea is saying, I'm going to lure her, get her out to the wilderness, and there in the wilderness, I'm going to allow her to stumble into the valley of trouble, hurt. And there, I'm going to open to her a door of hope and salvation. What God did with the nation of Israel, God sometimes does with us. Sometimes he allows us to eat the bitter fruit of our rebellion. Sometimes he brings us out into a wilderness, allows us to go down into the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, place of broken hearts and broken dreams, broken hopes. But it's often there in the valley of Achor that God opens to us the door of salvation and hope. At any rate, that's what happened in the lives of Hosea and Gomer. But when we come to chapter 3, we discover that uh, Gomer went lower and lower until she fell into the hands of a man who not only was not able to care for her, apparently he fell into the hands of a man who cared nothing about her at all. And that man decided to sell Gomer into slavery. Ancient world, slavery was an established institution. Almost every city had a, a, a place each year where men and women were bought and sold like animals. 
secular historians say that when women were sold, they were stripped of their clothes, forced to stand before the gaze of the crowd. There was to such a place that Gomer was taken. To such a place that Hosea was called to go. You can picture the scene. Gomer is left is led up to the slave black. And then somebody notices that at the edge of the crowd there's Hosea. You can hear the gossip as it goes through the crowd. <laughs> That's how he's come to see her get get what she deserves. He's come to see her get her punishment. Then the bidding begins. Somebody says, I'll give you ten pieces of silver for her. Hosea says, I'll give you fifteen pieces of silver. Somebody else says, Well, I'll give you fifteen pieces and a, a homer of barley. Hosea says, I'll give you 15 pieces and a homer and a half of barley. The gavel sounds. Hosea goes to the crowd to buy back his wife. You can imagine the gossip as it goes from mouth to ear. Boy, that's a high price to pay for vengeance. I mean, why not just let her be sold into the hands of some man or some woman? Let her spend the rest of her life regretting what she's done. High price to pay for vengeance. But Hosea doesn't buy Gomer to punish her, but to redeem her. And so he says in chapter 3, verse 2, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half homer of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You should not play the whore or belong to another man. So I will also be to you. But Hosea is saying to Gomer is, look, I have bought you, you are a purchased possession. And I ask you now to live with me in faithfulness. And whether you are faithful or not, I swear I'll be faithful to you. You said to me, how could any man do that? I mean, how could any man go before the community that knew him, knew this woman, knew how she had cause all kinds of problems. How can he buy her back in order to redeem her? The answer to that question is found in verse 1 of chapter 3, in one of the great sentences in all the book of God. The Lord said to me, Hosea, go again Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love the cakes of raisins 
associated with idolatry. The reason that Hosea was able to love Gomer as he did was that the love of God himself was shed abroad in his heart. And Hosea is acting towards Gomer as God is acting towards you and me all of our lives. And from this great story of Hosea, there are just two applications I'd like to make. One is for those of you who are here today who have by faith come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that is that God doesn't love you because of what you are. God loves you in spite of what you are. God doesn't love you because of what you do. God loves you in spite of what you do. If you come to understand how much he loves you, then you respond in wonder, love, and praise, service. But God doesn't love you because of what you are. God doesn't love you because of what you do. Let me make it very clear. If you were to give all of your money, all of your money to God's cause in the world, God would not love you more than he loves you now. If you were to serve him in some benighted place on earth, God would not love you more than he loves you now. We keep bringing in from the old life that bookkeeping mentality. <laughs> the mentality that says, I will do certain things and God will love me. God doesn't do that. If you stand beneath the cross and see him die, and know he's dying for you, nothing, nothing, you and I did deserve that. He loves us in spite of what we are. Theologians call it grace. <laughs> and if you ask a theologian what he means by grace, he gives you this stuffy answer. He says, it's unmerited favor. All that says is, grace is getting what you don't deserve and not getting what you do deserve. You can't deserve it. You don't deserve it. We, he just gives it to us. But if somehow you understand that God doesn't love you because of what you are. He loves you in spite of what you are. Doesn't love you because of what you do. He loves you in spite of what you do. If that ever gets hold of you, then you respond with worship and love and praise and service. And there is a Second implication from this passage. It's an implication for those of you who may be here this morning who have not yet put your trust in Jesus Christ. You're on your way to faith, perhaps, but you're not there. 
I don't know you, of course, as a people, but I suspect that in a group like this, uh, some of you have said, you know, where is God? Where is he that I might know him? Where is he that I might find him? The answer from this text is that God is a boss. You are. That Jesus Christ, who has pursued you up a hill called Calvary and died for you, pursues you through the tunnel of an empty tomb, and pursues you to this place this morning and taps you on the soul and calls you to himself. Clovis Chapel was a Methodist preacher of another day. And he told of a young businessman in the city of Chicago who went down to the bluegrass regions of Kentucky where he met and loved, wooed and married a young woman that he brought back to Chicago as his bride. They enjoyed three wonderful years together, but then in the midst of a sickness and a seizure of pain, the young woman lost her mind. When she was at her best, she was a bit demented. When she was at her worst, she was a screaming maniac. and She would scream and yell and the neighbors would complain. So the young businessman moved out to the western suburbs of Chicago. Built the house. Tried to nurture his wife back to sanity again. Nothing much happened. And then uh, the family doctor suggested that perhaps, perhaps if he would go back to his old Kentucky home with her, something back there in her past would restore her memory. And so they went back to the uh, old homestead. Walked through the uh, old house where memories hung like cobwebs in every corner. Walked through the garden, down by the river where the first cowslips and violets were in bloom. But nothing happened. There was only that old, vacant look. And after several days, defeated, discouraged, young businessman put his wife in the car and drove back to Chicago. As he got back to, so, towards Chicago, however, he looked over and discovered his wife had fallen asleep. It's a deep, restful sleep. She hadn't had something like that in months. We got to the house, he uh, helped him gently out of the car, took her inside, and placed her on their bed. And she slept some more. He just sat by her side. On through the darkness of the midnight hour. On until the first rays of the sun touched her face and she awoke. She looked over, saw her husband seated by her side, she said. I, 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 I seem to have been on a long journey. Where have you been? And that dear heart speaking out of days and weeks and months of patient waiting. 
said, my sweetheart, I've been right here waiting for you all this time. And if you ask me where God is, <laughs> answer is very much the same. He's right here. He is right here waiting for you to respond with trust to promise, with love to love. He's waiting for you to cast yourself with a reckless abandon upon the grace of God. He's waiting for you to find out in the depths of your experience what it means to be loved by God according to the unconditional love displayed through his prophet Hosea. Will you pray with me about it? Oh, love that will not let us go. Though try as we will, we try to get away. And Father, we pray for any friends who are here today, heartbroken, heart-mended, we don't know, but who really understand how much you've done for them and would like take this unbelievably good news and react to it. Spirit of God, help them to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.